When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. I guess technically what will likely be the final episode of the incredibly long 2020 season. You know, 2020, the calendar year has felt like about nine years with all of the things, the twists and turns in the world that have gone on. And basketball, of course, uh, this season kicked off, I think technically last summer, Right, and then of course started and and played preseason basketball in the regular season at this point, like over a year ago. But as of recording this, Lakers ahead of the Heat, two nothing in the finals. Miami struggling with injuries. But today's episode is all about something that I think has been brewing throughout the playoffs, has been on my mind, and that is the big man, and specifically building modern offenses around the big man. This is something that used to be all the rage in basketball. You know, it was, uh, uh, you had to have a big guy to win. That was sort of the thinking for years. Michael Jordan, in part, was one of the players who helped break that mold to a certain degree. And now, of course, everyone thinks you have to play like Jordan to win. And that's a whole separate thing that hopefully will get into the history of that a little bit more to a certain degree in the Greatest Peak series that's coming during the offseason. If you missed it, there's a trailer up on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. Quick trailer just teasing this series. It's going to be a multi-part series that will run through the offseason. I don't have an exact launch date yet. That's still to be determined. All kinds of things going on here with wrapping up the regular season and getting ready to release that project, but hopefully that will shed way more color on sort of the history of how big men were used. And and today's NBA, you know, we think a lot about what has happened to the big. Um, one of the things I'm thinking about as the finals are wrapping is on the defensive side. I mentioned this on this week's uh, The Athletic podcast Nerder, she wrote. I guess this is a great time to mention The Athletic is the podcast, uh, the sponsor of this particular podcast today. And for this week, a limited time special offer as of now expiring October 9th, you can sign up at theathletic.com slash thinking basketball and get six months for a dollar. Just one dollar a month for the first six months. It's a pretty awesome limited time deal if you go through theathletic.com slash thinking basketball it's a great way to support this podcast regular listeners know the spiel i use the app all the time you get it you download it you customize it you open it up you add it to your morning reads and you can pick the authors and topics you want to get updates on as they come in local coverage national coverage Uh, and in this case i was on the podcast this week the nba show nerder she wrote with Dave Dufour and Mo DeKeel and Seth Partnow. We're going to try to get him on the show 
next week. He's just announced that he is working on a new book that will be published on sort of the modern state of analytical thinking in basketball. So that's very exciting. And one of the things that came up there was, you know, Anthony Davis on defense. And I did an episode, I think last year, that you can try to go back and find, I don't know the number off the top of my head, that looks at some data and research on big man impact today versus 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Because we have this play-by-play data that doesn't look at blocks, it doesn't look at steals, it doesn't look at anything like that. It just tries to capture a single value number. And there's pros and cons to that. We don't have to get into that here. If you haven't seen Thinking Basketball uh, stats series on YouTube, I allude to it there. But these are at least things that, these are tools that at least allow us to get a sort of single high-level answer to a question without worrying about the particulars. Again, it's flawed. It's not perfect. But I think it provides a lot of insight for something like, hey, 20, 30, 40 players used to have this archetype. The, I don't know, Dikembe Mutombo, Alonzo Mourning, roam the paint, block a lot of shots archetype. And the leaders in that field seem to, uh, I don't know, be worth three or four points a game or something like that. But now the defensive value of those same type of players seems to be worth two points or something. Or in the case of uh, the extreme example like Roy Hibbert, if you're slow-footed enough, maybe you become a negative. Um, You know, this is the kind of thing that I'm thinking about on the defensive end. Anthony Davis, he came up on the athletic show, Nerder She Wrote as well, where I think a big question for him on defense is, does his versatility make him far more valuable in the postseason than the regular season? Rudy Gobert, one of the things about Rudy Gobert is he is skilled enough to not get smoked on the perimeter, but if you play a bunch of different types of offenses in the playoffs, does it kind of dull his blade a little bit? Does it take away some of his value? I think the answer is yes. I think the amount of value it takes away is overstated depending on how excited you get about his regular season play. With someone like Davis, it goes the other way. And that's to be determined. We need a larger sample. We need to get out of the bubble. But things are changing is the point. And as the landscape changes, different skill sets become valuable. And so today's show is really about what happens on offense with big men. Back in the day, you want to build around a big man. There's different ways to do it. You want Kareem. You want a scorer. You want a big man who can pass out of the post. In the 90s, you had Akeem Olajuwon, and I've always said, you know, a big thing with Akeem was getting some shooters and and more of a spoken wheel model where he could kick it in the post and and pitch it back out if need be or go to work. Shaq kind of had a similar thing in LA. Yeah, he had a similar thing in Orlando as well with the shooters there. But, you know, a lot of people have said this has gone by the wayside. The the big man's extinct. It's not the same. Uh, We're going to just have these teams with no pure bigs anymore and it's just going to be a bunch of perimeter players and if you could get switchy forwards who can hold their own you know Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in Boston are maybe great examples of this where 
They're big and long, and they can play on the perimeter, but especially in the case of Brown, like you can play him at center against non-beasts, basically, right? Guys that just won't completely abuse you down low. And as the landscape of the league changes, and I think this is where Davis is kind of top of mind, if you try to go really small, Miami in the finals here at the beginning of the series has had these lineups where they've had no pure bigs on the court and you're left with like Andre Iguodala trying to guard Anthony Davis. And this just breaks down in so many ways. Houston has the same problem. There's there's all sorts of things teams are doing to mitigate damage against post players while playing small. And those things are largely successful. But it just doesn't mean as a blanket rule, all bigs aren't successful anymore. And in fact, let's start laying out kind of these templates because what I see is a handful of archetypes for big men that you can build your offense around. And I'll use that term a little loosely because, you know, this doesn't have to be heliocentric. This doesn't have to be a single star with all the other players in orbit. There are a handful of really good offensive big men in the NBA right now. And as we're about to unpack, I think there are some archetypes that really focus on a big man as, if not the primary driver of an offense, at least one of the key primary drivers of an offense. And that does include high-level championship offense in the playoffs. Okay, so specifically, what are these archetypes. I blocked out five. This is kind of a first pass through this idea for me, so could be more, could be less, but there are, I'm seeing five right now, okay? Those five, let's start with kind of the most vanilla one, and that's the facilitator. And this certainly plugs into my most recent video on the comparisons between the Heat offense this year and the Golden State offenses during their championship years, but The facilitator big man is the idea that you have a big basically feeding actions from the high post or from the elbow. So you're taking advantage of a big man's height as a passer, and in theory, he does something else along with that. So in the case of Bam Adebayo, he can also be a rim, you know, a a roll man and provide rim gravity, get downhill, offensive rebounds, things like that. Draymond Green, I think, is another kind of classic example of this, where you leverage the, in a way, least skilled classic score on the court. Bam could have the same description. And you say, in Draymond's case, Draymond, I think, gets more value from pushing in transition and before his shot started to sort of fall apart, at least having some three-point threat that he could space the court with. Marc Gasol is another modern example of this, where he is an excellent passer from these high spot, high post spots and around the elbow. It's a really common, you know, teams will run this so-called elbow action because they're at the elbow. They're at that little nook between the free throw line and the lane and and kind of in similar spots. And you can run handoff action from there. You can 
dime up cutters if you're a good passer you can see over the top hit little back doors entries and as I said typically there's something else that's keeping that guy on the court with some offensive value without him falling into one of the other categories you know these players aren't just pure stretch bigs or ISO scores like Danilo Gallinari or something like that. I'm thinking specifically of this role that the big man can play in the modern game without being a classic post score, back to the basket score, or some deadly three-point shooter or something like that. So that's the facilitator, and I think it's the most kind of vanilla example of how modern offenses fit with a big man playing an integral role in that offense. And it's not to say you need to be a spectacular passer to do this, but it helps to be a really good passer. It helps to be more dynamic with the basketball. And I think, as I said, you want to have another skill that you can kind of fit into different offenses and different archetypes of team offenses when you play this role. And that's an important role to be playing because you you allow off-ball players who are perimeter players with different skills to get away from the responsibilities of dribbling, to diversify out of just playing pick and roll or spread pick and roll or something like that. So it does give you another element to go to as a team. Next one on my list is four out. Four out. This is... Uh, just, of course, the classic Shaq, Hakeem, throw it into the post, try to have shooters around, try to take advantage of a big man's great interior scoring skill set. You have to be a decent enough passer to punish this for this to be successful. And the example that I think is at top of mind for this category for me is Joel Embiid. And there's some question marks still about how effective Joel can Joel Embiid can be as a number one high-end offensive player. Um, if you're not as familiar with my historical work, as an aside, a rule of thumb here is that the greatest offensive players ever are typically wings and smaller players. They have more ball skills, they have more diversity, three-point shooting, passing, so on and so forth. And that your big men, even your your really good offensive big men who may put up a lot of points per game, think of Patrick Ewing or Tim Duncan, they tend to lack the playmaking and the passing and some of the other versatile skills that make them, you know, all-time great offensive players. But they can be really you can have big men who are, you know, all-star level or maybe even all-NBA level players without their defense just because they're really good offensive players. And I think that's where Embiid falls. To me, he's he is someone that is not going to have the passing and the playmaking and the other transcendent tools. But if you want an offense in the playoffs that is at least solid, you know, doesn't wilt, uh, doesn't fall apart, is able to score resiliently. You know, maybe you only have a one ten offensive rating. By the way, one. The league average offensive rating now is almost 111 this year, I believe, depending on which source you look at, the way it's calculated. So 110-111 may only be average in the regular season. But when you get into the postseason, 
if your defense is still really good, and in theory, a guy like Embiid, you build around the defense, and then the offense does just enough, that's how you build your championship contender, then, yeah, you want a four-out offense where you can dump it into him, punish mismatches, punish smaller teams, punish smaller teams for not having bigger, better options on their roster that you can take advantage of on the offensive end without getting smoked on defense. And then around that, you probably need the right, you know, shooters and ball handlers. If you're wondering, on Embiid, he played 479 minutes this year without Al Horford or Ben Simmons on the court. Philadelphia had a 113.4 offensive rating, so a little bit better, you know, that's good. If average is 110 and you're at 113, that's pretty good. That's not great, but it's solid. And the team was plus 15 per 100 in those possessions, so there's your theoretical advantage. Do enough on offense and suffocate people on defense. In the last two years, without Simmons on the court, that's over, it's almost 1,200 minutes. Philadelphia is plus 10.6 per 100 possessions in their net rating, outscoring teams by almost 11 points per 100 in that span, and their offensive rating is 114, so even better. And the last data point I'll reference during this show, which is a really cool one, uh, you can find it on Jacob Goldstein's site, winsadded.com. He has a filter here for it. If you look at his player impact plus minus PIPM and then select defenses, what I did is I selected the top 10 or 11 defenses from the last two seasons and looked at how these guys performed against them. Embiid had the 28th best offensive PIPM with that filter against those top defenses. We'll just call it top defenses for the rest of the episode. He was 28th best in the league plus 2.3. So again, not phenomenal, but this is the footprint to me of a guy where if you have a remotely decent offensive structure around him, you know, you might need some shooting, you might want some three and D, you might need a ball handler or two, but not only is the footprint solid based on all the regular season data, but I think you can get into the playoffs and potentially punish people with mismatches or have this be a tricky thing to really, really shut down completely. So the classic four-out system still could potentially be there as long as you don't get smoked on defense. I mean, when Ennis Cantor comes in the game for the Celtics, Ennis Cantor has always been a good offensive player. Uh, In the prime years in his league, he's always had this profile, offensive rebounding, low post scoring. And he's a very, very, um, you know, sort of, light example of this, but if Ennis Cantor were a better defensive player, and in theory, Joel Embiid can be a great defensive player, that's not even required, right? But in theory, if you could do that, guys like this would create more problems in the playoffs because of their size. So that's still there. That's the four out model. Um, I'm not going to try to list every you know, group every center or power forward in the NBA today this way. But to me, Embiid is the dominant archetype for this four-out model. But why go four-out when you can go five-out and just get everyone completely out of the lane? 
So if four out is you're bringing your classic post player, and of course Embiid can hit threes and shoot from the outside and things, but in general you're looking to have him operate beneath the, the foul line within 15 feet. Um, five out is just guys that want to start out on the perimeter. They want to attack empty space. So you've got all the shooters dotting the three-point arc, and of course you give the ball to Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's the prime example here for me. And I think, in general, this kind of five-out offensive player, you can have success in transition because it's usually going to be an athlete. You could have success as a role man or with a lob game or even with offensive putbacks because, again, it's going to be an athlete who wants to use that open space to get downhill. But these really aren't perimeter players. You know, I'm not saying LeBron James is huge. LeBron James is like 6'8 or 6'9", and he's built like a tank, but he spends a tremendous amount of time outside the three-point line. Uh, He plays pick and roll. He shoots a lot from out there. He, He literally just dribbles and holds the ball in sets on the perimeter, whereas a five out big man doesn't have to start at the three point line. You know, Giannis gets a lot of touches at the elbow with everyone cleared out and then can still attack the empty space. And that's the idea. It's, it's to strain the defense by creating empty space for your dominant athlete and having him attack that. And I've compared Giannis to Shaq. I've called him the new Shaq, not literally because he's like Shaquille, who's 100 pounds heavier or whatever, but because his skills are all about finishing around the hoop, using length and speed instead of power, um, all of kind of the modern versions of what basketball was like 25 years ago look more like Giannis as a dominant big who can't shoot very well, right? That's kind of a key here. You're going to fall into a different category if you can shoot. So a, a prospective five-out big man that you could build an offense around would be Zion Williamson. Now, again, take the height thing. I don't know if I'm cheating because I'm thinking less about height, but as of today, his rookie year and his year at Duke, and, and you know, we are, uh, we are past rookies, as I've said, because now we're into the, the fall of 2020. We're where we would be when Zion would be in his second year, and based on all the information we have, he's still not looking at all like a perimeter player. But he's not a back-to-the-basket, four-out big man, and he's not a stretch big man. He's more of this Giannis mold where you want to create space, you want to use him downhill in pick-and-roll games as a lob threat on the glass with putbacks in transition, just like Giannis, like I said. And if we look at some of the data, Zion... Uh, against that top defensive filter was 33rd in offensive PIPM this year, plus 2.1. That's a two-year filter, technically. Uh, But he only played, of course, one year. Giannis was fifth. Giannis, uh, with the huge regular season sample here, the best of any of these big men we'll look at, plus 4.7 offensive PIPM against those higher-end defenses. Now, the question with Giannis, and I don't know if it's specific to this five-out archetype or if it's just more of a Giannis thing, is what is the difference between 
the regular season offensive impact and the postseason offensive impact. Because, for instance, if we look at the raw numbers, in the regular season the last two years, when he's on the court, Milwaukee has a 116 offensive rating. In the playoffs, that goes down to 111. And some of that is, you know, against the really weak teams they've played in the first round. They've played five playoff series. And three of them have been against, you know, high-level teams. They played the Celtics in the second round last year. They played Toronto in the conference finals. And they played Miami this year. And in fact, we see a much smaller change, even though it's a small sample, uh, you know, 400 minutes on off the court and 800 minutes on the court type of thing. But we see a smaller change in the playoffs between Giannis on the court and Giannis off the court with Milwaukee's offensive effectiveness. There's been a lot written and discussed, I won't belabor it here, about game planning and scheming to chip away at the effectiveness of that offense because it's a little bit more one-dimensional in its attack. I mean, just think about the category. The, the five-out category is, well, I don't have a spectacular back-to-the-basket game, and I'm not going to play like a guard per se and run pick-and-roll and play-make off the dribble like that, and I'm not a great shooter. Another one I want to mention here, because I've always thought of him as a big man, is Ben Simmons. I know a lot of people who think he can kind of fit in this archetype and would be like a light version of Giannis. I still see that as something that would be, maybe it would, maybe we would describe him as a five-out big man at that point if he ran the offense like this, but to me, that would be a very light version of Giannis. In other words, I do not have high hopes about it uh, in the postseason and in the regular season. I don't think the results would be as sexy either. Now, if Simmons ups his athleticism a little bit, if he becomes more aggressive, stronger through the shoulders, more powerful with some of his moves. I do think he is the best passer of this group that I just mentioned, and that could change things. But to put it in perspective, his numbers without Joel Embiid the last two years, or even Al Horford on the court, just basically you know trying to clear out some of those post players and big men, uh, Philadelphia 109 offensive rating with Ben Simmons in those spots. That's below league average. The team gets outscored by a pretty hefty margin. And his numbers don't really change. He's about 19 points per 75 possessions as a scorer on 55% true shooting right around league average in those spots. With Embiid, the volume goes down a little bit, down to like 16 points per 75, and the efficiency efficiency up to 60%. Uh, he doesn't create way more offense in those situations, at least by the numbers, by any of my estimates. And using that defensive filter when he plays good defenses, his offensive PIPM, 117th, just above neutral. So make of that what, make of that what you will. Boy, I can't speak today. I think it's seven months of quarantine. So we've mentioned the facilitator. We've done four out. We've done five out. And then I think there's kind of two more big categories I hit here. The next one is off ball. And this gets us back to Anthony Davis, who, if you haven't listened to it, I did a greatest off ball players episode trying to just focus on the offensive value guys bring without their kind of like on ball game. If we had to strip that away, I think 
Davis, one of the great off-ball players ever, and one of the great off, maybe maybe the best uh, off-ball big of all time, because you're looking for skills like offensive rebounding, uh, you know, finishing at the rim with lobs, pick and roll partnership, but then also pick and pop ability. Um, he moves very well and flashes to spots in the mid range. Gets moves in transition like this. Can back cut and can hit the three. And can fade to the three. Can go from being a screener to to a shooter. Uh, a huge number uh, percentage of kind of his shots have been assisted over the years. You might not notice that unless you watch him a lot or know that data. But I think the key to this is that it's rare. This is a very rare skill set because to kind of fit in this category, you have to have some kind of inside-outside combination game. I think a historical example of this would be someone like Kevin Garnett, where you've got post skills and you're big and you can do other things, but you also have an outside shot and maybe you're comfortable handling and passing. I think it's a very rare kind of category. Um, If you want to feather someone in who's a little bit more realistic, maybe like Kristaps Porzingis right now. It's I ironically his nickname is the unicorn because he's a seven three dude who can, you know, put it on the deck and dunk on you and then also hit threes. So make of that what you will about how realistic this archetype is. But I do think this is kind of its own archetype from what we'll t- what we've been talking about and where we'll land on the final category. One thing to really note, though, as is the case with a lot of off-ball greatness, uh, you, it's less about floor raising. It's you're, you're going to see less of a, hey, let's build our offense around this guy and have these incredible regular season results, and more of what I think you saw in New Orleans with Anthony Davis, which is, okay, things are good, but they don't jump off the page. Now, I said this before I said this in my top 10 video last year when talking about his case for the best player in the league last season, but I mean, he's, these guys still can do solid jobs in floor raising situations because of this level of talent. Anthony Davis last year in New Orleans on the court, they had a 115 offensive rating and they outscored people by almost four points per 100. That's with Drew Holiday, Julius Randle, Alfred Payton, Darius Miller, Etwan Moore, Solomon Hill, Tim Frazier, Frank Jackson. If you took Nikola Mirotic out of that equation, a 114 offensive rating still. In Los Angeles, in the regular season, when he played with LeBron James, 114 offensive rating. When LeBron James was off the court, 111 offensive rating. So there's kind of the classic example. If you don't construct the roster in any incredibly meaningful way around him, uh, when you kind of just put him out there by himself with, uh, let's say, random parts or semi-random parts, you, a 111 offensive rating, that's that's right around league average. That's okay. It's not terrible. It's not great. But at this point, we do have to question the difference between the regular season and then the ability for this to um, become more valuable in a way in the playoffs. In 173 playoff minutes as of recording this, a small sample alert, definitely a small sample, but uh, Los Angeles with a 122 offensive rating with Anthony Davis on the court and LeBron James off the court in the 2020 playoffs. And AD's numbers have been fantastic in that stretch. 32 points per 75, 
on 68% true shooting. There's some luck to that. His mid-range shot right now is in the mid to high 50s. I just, I don't think that's sustainable at all. Uh, I do think it's by, you know, we can, we can buy that he's improved his mid-range shot and that he's a good mid-range shooter, but those are just off the charts numbers. If you bring them back down even to 45% on these mid-range shots, uh, he'd be like 29 points per 75 on 62% true shooting. The offense, in theory, just from those shots alone, would go down to about 118, 119 offensive rating. So, still great stuff, but in a very small sample. The thing that jumps out to me is the offensive rebounding. Six offensive rebounds per 100. That's a huge number. And he's shooting 80% at the rim in the postseason. Again, these are small samples, but that one's more sustainable to me because that one is a reflection of him just destroying smaller teams or teams that are ill-equipped to handle his balance of speed, athleticism, cutting, and size. I actually think this was a thing in last night's game against the Heat game two where they were still playing a tremendous amount of zone against the Lakers. And then you have Davis coming in, grabbing offensive rebounds, and mm, let's say certain commentators then criticize the effort of the Heat team. And I don't think that's it at all. Instead, you can, you can, there's a number of instances you can see it on film. Kendrick Nunn, if he's the low guy on the block, and Davis roams into his area in the zone, that's just a mismatch. It's going to take a lot of work for Nunn to make sure he keeps AD off the glass in those situations. And yeah, when he roots down like that, uh, just his entire athletic package has made it really difficult for teams. So that is more sustainable to me. And Porzingis' numbers, by the way, also very good just in terms of his combination of spacing, pick and pop, and then a little bit with the same thing on putbacks or his size at the hoop. He doesn't have a great post game. In fact, you could argue he has kind of a weak post game for his size. But I think he's another one of these sort of like off-ball big men that you integrate into high-level offenses really well as key pieces. With Luka Doncic, a 118 offensive rating. It's Porzingis and Doncic on the court in the regular season when they were both off, by the way. The Mavs still had a 114 offensive rating. I've talked about how good their bench can be and basically the way Carlisle has them playing. He's just a fantastic coach. Just a fantastic coach. But Christoph Porzingis on the court in those minutes without Luka Doncic this year also had a 118 offensive rating. And this comes out in our PIPM filter where when we look at the performance against these top defenses only in the last two seasons, he's 22nd in the whole league, plus 2.7. So these guys, Anthony Davis, 18th, plus 3.2. So not only do these guys have a lot of value, but I think there's a lot of signals saying they're really, really good. And whether you want to think about traditionally building around them in the heliocentric way, yeah, that might be okay. But I think... The way I'm looking at this is if I'm trying to construct a high-level championship offense, these big men are a key part of the attack. Sure, I can only have great perimeter players 
and fill out my roster that way and think about my offense defense trade-offs that way but this is the modern game if I can get big men who can protect the rim not get smoked on the perimeter and in the case of AD you know he's the real unicorn here guard wings guard bigs played you know I can put him in zone I can put him in rim protection I can switch I can not switch um having this kind of offensive package for a big man is huge obviously all of this has ramifications for scouting and drafting and projecting prospects I'll leave that for another day I'm trying to lay the groundwork here but you think about someone like DeAndre Ayton and then trying to put him into one of these categories you would think the four out category that classic category is the one he's in and then you kind of want to go through your checklist which is in that category don't I want this guy to be able to be part of an elite defense like maybe the defense should be the better thing and a four out offense is the thing that just keeps you kind of good enough to compete if you will for a title so if you don't have that, if you look at a prospect like Aiton and you're really, really nervous about his defense, and then you look at him in a four-out offensive structure, um, maybe you rethink having him near the top of your draft board. That's just one example. I'm sure there are plenty others that you could go through. Let's finish up with the final category that I just call the full package. Should it be the full Monty? Anyone remember that movie? Um, <laughs> this is, of course, Nikola Jokic. And just the idea that you have an offensive skill set that allows you to pass really well, you can probably dribble around at the least. Like, you don't need to be LeBron James with your handle, but you're not stationary. You can go places. And now you've got kind of a little mobility to your game, which means you can play at the top of the key, you can play two-man, you can play at the elbow. And so with Jokic, you combine that with a post game and outside shooting. It's, it's really skill ball. You know, your athleticism is less of the thing. It's more of your all-around skills as a big. And of course, Jokic being the best offensive big in the game, I mean, he is the epitome here, the, sh the shining light of not just this category, but of the idea of building around a big. Murray and Jokic two-man game, as much as Murray has grown, um, even if he takes everything we saw in the bubble and brings it back for years to come and that's here to stay, you still look at the team and you go, yeah, it's basically built around Jokic. It, Jokic is the guy who, at least to me, is clearly the better offensive player. And he's the better offensive player because of all that kind of versatility. Because you can post him up if you have a mismatch and you have a switch. Because you can play off the elbows. You can kind of... And another way to think of this is you can kind of run a number of the other different systems we looked at. You can use them as a facilitator, but then they also become a four-out scorer type if you need to take them to the post. But they also become kind of an off-ball type or at least an element of that because they're big enough in the post to rebound and abuse switches in that situation, but then they can go to the perimeter and shoot threes. Jokic, by the way, 15th 
in that offensive PIPM filter over the last two years, plus 3.4. Again, if we put that in the playoffs, would it be slightly better? Probably for my money, yeah. 115 offensive rating with him on the court, but in the postseason this this year, the offensive rating was 116 with him on the court. That's more impressive to me. Jokic, not the only guy here, though. I'm going to say Jokic light could be the other Nikola Nikola Vucevic. Uh, of course, things have happened in the playoffs that I think um, mean we're talking about a totally different class of player. But again, can you pass? Can you play at the elbows? Do you have a modicum of mobility? And then do you have enough skills to play in the post and out on the three-point line? There's a lot of nice offensive stuff you can do with that. Vooch's offensive PIPM, 21st in the last two years against this filter. You know, maybe maybe a healthier Nurkic, Yusuf Nurkic, could kind of... You see, hopefully you're following what you can do with these big men if they have this skill, you don't all have to be Denver, but you can integrate a, a hybrid guard like Murray. You can play with off-ball cutters like Miami or Golden State. You can play with other scorers. You, there's all kinds of versatility you get from your offense, and that makes it difficult to defend. And I said, uh, I think it was last week's show, that after reviewing the film, I was a little more optimistic about Denver's offense against the Lakers. And, and I feel really good about that in, in retrospect because my original gut instinct was that the Lakers were going to walk through them. And that was a much closer series precisely because the Nuggets could still score. I think off the top of my head, their offensive rating in that series was like 112 or 113. Uh, someone will correct me on Twitter, hopefully, if I have that wrong. But they, the games were close because... Jokic and that kind of versatility on offense is really, really difficult to defend. And there's one more guy. Uh, this is a this is a blast from the past because they weren't a bubble team from those old days back when 30 teams played in front of arenas. There's there's one more guy here to mention in this category. He's been on my mind a lot because I think he's suffering both from losing bias given his situation. But also because, I mean, there are legit questions about his defense and how this whole thing could hold up in the playoffs. But I think his offense is fantastic, and that's Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony Towns, 2019, Timberwolves had a 114 offensive rating with him on the court. 2020, they had a 116 offensive rating with him in the 1,200 minutes or so that he played. In this filter, looking at high-level defensive teams that these guys go against. A plus 3.9 offensive PIPM, that was the 11th best offensive PIPM in the league. Better than Jokic. I've said this before, I said it in the video profile I did on him, he might be the greatest shooting big man of all time. I mean, we can split hairs about Dirk and Larry Bird and all that, but just the sheer volume of threes and the way he's making them. He's a really good passer. So you can, Minnesota was doing this. Minnesota was mixing in his outside shooting, his post game, and then his passing ability at the elbows with handoffs, with back cuts. He passes well when doubled in the post or kind of in that pinch post uh, wingy elbow area. This is a really, really good offensive big man. I think he needs to be in a better situation 
like Jokic, but I think if you put more offensive talent around him, you could possibly... Uh, now, for the record, I think Jokic is still clearly a level above him on offense. But what I'm thinking about is, can you just full tilt, build an elite offensive package around Carl anthony Towns? Or I should say, if he's the full package, can you build an elite offensive team based on the backbone of the skills that I just described, where he is clearly the best offensive player on the team. And yeah, your second best offensive guy might not be too far behind because you want to have an all-star or an all-NBA guard or something who can play two-man game with him, who can play pick and pop, or who's an off-ball guy who can work off of all of the things I just described, post-game, elbows, high post, three-point shooting. I kind of think you can I don't know, but this is what's been on my mind. Let's recap really quickly uh, the five archetypes that I've laid out for building modern offenses around big men. The full package or the full Monty, that's your Nikola Jokic example. Off ball, that's very rare, but that's like an Anthony Davis. And maybe off ball should really be hybrid, something like that, because it's a hybrid between some of those on ball and off ball skills. Five out is the honest model. Four out is the Joel Embiid classic model. And then you have a much more vanilla kind of cog in the wheel thing, uh, which is to have a a facilitator who can help your offense run from the high post, play with off ball guys, play with cutters and shooters, um, that kind of role as a centerpiece in the offense without being a great offensive weapon per se. So, well, I think... The heliocentric model is very popular, and wing players and smalls are still, by and large, better offensive players. There seems to be a lot of space for me to build great offenses in the modern NBA around big men or with big men as an integral part of that success. Let me know what you think at LG35 on Twitter. Uh, Remember, through October 9th, as of right now, $1 a month at theathletic.com slash thinking basketball that's a great way to support this show the best way to support this show is to head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball next weekend on the 10th we will have our final live q a of the 2020 season uh, a post-mortem we do that over on our discord community we also have historical stats you'll get access to a historical database those same live stats that update throughout the season and the playoffs, uh, extra Patreon-only videos, podcast post shows, and more. That's it for me. Hope you enjoyed this one. Hope you've enjoyed the season. Let me know what you think. And of course, wherever you are out there, thanks for listening all the way to the end. And I hope that you're having a great day.